Thank you. It's a rare privilege for me to be here. I think this is only the second time in my career they've unleashed me on the students <laughs> of the Masters University. The last time was in the 1990s, I think. So about every 25 years, I, I make it over here. And, uh, but I love it, and I, I appreciate it. Uh, also, a fact about me that even my children don't know, I used to play clarinet, but I could never achieve that tone. And uh, so I switched to tuba, which was more in keeping with my personality and my embouchure. <laughs> but I don't even do that anymore, but thank you for that. That was great. Psalm 128. Psalm 128. We're going to look at this brief psalm, and to begin with, Notice the inscription, a song of ascents. There are 15 psalms in the Psalter with that same inscription, songs of ascents. And they're all grouped together in our canon, starting with Psalm 120. It goes through Psalm 134, 15 of them in a row, and they're the only ones with that inscription. So this is like a portable songbook within a larger book of psalms. Uh, these 15 psalms are all sort of short praise choruses. And most interpreters believe these were collected to be sung by pilgrims as they traveled to Jerusalem for the annual feast days. Because no matter where you start from, if you're going to Jerusalem, you have to go uphill on a steep climb. And so these are songs of ascents, songs about going up, songs of praise for an uphill journey. And the key word and the theme of our psalm is blessing. Specifically, Psalm 128 describes what God's blessings look like in the context of ordinary domestic life. This is what a God-blessed home life looks like. You can tell from verse 3 that the psalmist wrote it or addressed it primarily to fathers. In fact, this would make a great Father's Day text. But the central principle here is applicable to all of us, and in fact, there's a special lesson here that is particularly suitable for 21st century college students, and that's why I chose this psalm, and that's what I want to emphasize. Psalm 128 is a reminder that true spiritual prosperity consists of divine blessings that, to the undiscerning eye, might just seem ordinary or drab or routine, unexciting, commonplace. But in reality, this is where life's richest blessings are enjoyed, in the common pleasures of everyday life. And it's also the most fruitful place where you can cultivate holiness in the ordinary activities of normal life. You know, we tend to think uh, you have to be radical. You have to be, if you're not like John the Baptist, living in the wilderness and eating bugs, you're not really spiritual. Or if you want to achieve a higher level of spirituality, you have to do something radical like that. And I think, frankly, this psalm is given as an encouragement against depression. These are words of encouragement and reassurance for those who feel their own insufficiency, telling us you don't have to achieve something spectacular or become a John the Baptist in order to honor Christ. If you want your life to mean something, start where you are. Clean your room. Be godly in the context of your own family. Honor your father and mother. And once you have all of those things on track, God may call you to a radical life on some remote mission field. But if, even if he doesn't, your life will be a blessing that endures across the generations. That's the message of this psalm. 
And in fact, if you haven't already begun to cultivate holiness and happiness where you are right now, adopting some radical lifestyle is not going to fix the problem for you. That's the theme of Psalm 128, and and the key word here is divine blessing, blessing. This is what a God-blessed life looks like, and the word bless appears in various forms four times in verses 1, 2, 4, and 5. There's actually not a single verse in this psalm that doesn't include some promise or description or invocation of God's blessing, and the blessing that's envisioned here starts at the level of a single family, but it extends to the whole nation. Zion is mentioned in verse 5. Jerusalem is likewise named in that same verse, and the psalm closes then with an invocation of peace on the whole nation of Israel. So what's in view here is a blessing that ultimately extends beyond the family, in this case to the whole nation. But the actual focal point of the psalm is the blessedness of a holy home life. This is what the blessing of God looks like close up. And I want you to notice something very carefully. The description of a godly home life is anything but radical. There's nothing radical about it. You know, people in our culture today have an unusual fixation with all things radical. If you want to sell a product or an idea or a fad, especially to students these days, you have to market your concept as something radical. Even among Christian young people nowadays, there's this unusual fascination with the idea of being radical. I've lost count of how many books aimed at uh, evangelical students have the word radical featured prominently somewhere in the title or the cover copy. Radical spirit-filled living, radical grace, radical discipleship, the radical Jesus. There's even a book called Revolution, Living as an Ordinary Radical. That's my favorite. (laughs) Or Radical Self-Love, that's my least favorite living as an ordinary radical, and suddenly that actually makes perfect sense because anything that claims to be radical now is kind of ordinary. It's not really radical to want to be radical anymore. The average evangelical today seems to think that if you don't live a lifestyle that is spiritually and politically unorthodox, unconventional, somehow eccentric or conspicuously radical, then you're not really following Jesus like you should. And it's also become popular among radical evangelicals to make a a totally artificial distinction between the word Christian and, and the expression Christ follower. I first saw that almost a decade ago, maybe more, when a popular blog featured an article in which the author said, I don't like to refer to myself as a Christian. He said, I'm a Christ follower, but I'm not a Christian. And uh, nowadays, that's a fairly common cliché. I'm sure you've heard it. One of the biggest religious websites on the Internet has an article titled, Why I Quit Being a Christian in Order to Better Follow Jesus. And the author says he gave up being a Christian so that he could become a true Christ follower. An article in... Sorry, an article in Christianity Today reported on this fad, and they said it's a statement about political conviction. They, They translated it for us. They said, what it really means is, I'm with Desmond Tutu. I'm 
I'm with Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa, but I'm not with the Southern Baptists. And a large part of the idea here is that Christians are too conventional. Evangelicals are too straight-laced. To be a real Christ follower, you need to be a radical in your lifestyle and your doctrine and even in your politics. <clears throat> if you want to be radical by the current definition, it helps if you're an environmentally conscious pacifist who thinks justice entails government-mandated redistribution of wealth. You can, you know, sew your own sackcloth, spin your own sackcloth, and sew your own clothes like Shane Claiborne. And lots of people think that that sort of self-styled radicalism is inherently a kind of advanced sanctification. The cover article for the March 2013 issue of Christianity Today highlighted this whole trend with an article titled, Here Come the Radicals, and they profiled Shane Claiborne and several others who, who teach that the key to genuine Christ-likeness is a radical lifestyle. And there's something that greatly troubles me about that whole mentality. To call something radical is to say it's extreme or that it's a significant departure from everything that is ordinary or customary or conventional. And to be fair, there is a true sense in which the life and teachings of Christ were a deliberate rebuke to the legalistic, extra-biblical traditions of the Pharisees. He was radical in that sense. Jesus also made many demands to his disciples that have a distinctly radical sound and feel to them. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Or Matthew 10, 35 through 38. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, Jesus said. And whoever loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Or Jesus to the rich young ruler, Mark 10, 21. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Those are definitely radical demands. But you understand, I hope, that when Jesus says we need to hate our parents or forsake everything and take up our cross and follow him, he is speaking figuratively. Literally hating your parents would be a, a violation of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Literally carrying a cross around would be an, an impediment to most legitimate spiritual callings, if not all of them. Jesus wasn't advocating a freak lifestyle. He was instructing his followers on how their affections should be ordered. He's demanding to be first in our love and our loyalty. He's not saying that if you don't literally abandon all your possessions and live like a homeless person, then you're just not being radical enough. So, so let me be clear. It's quite true that the gospel makes some shocking and unsettling demands on us, and we need to take them seriously. And, and the faithful Christian needs to think in a markedly different way than the world lives and live in a way that sets us apart from the world. There's a true sense in which Christianity itself is a radical repudiation of self-centered values. 
Christ's true disciples are not supposed to float along with the current of worldly culture. And in that sense, we are called to a radically different lifestyle. But if you take your notion of what radical living means, or what it's supposed to look like, if you take that notion from irrespons- certain irresponsible teachers, if you think you, know, you have to grow dreadlocks or, or get tattoos and live in utter poverty in order to be truly pious, you have a severely skewed view of what faithfulness to Christ entails. And let me say it like this. It is our worldview, our values, and our affections that are supposed to be radical, not simply the way we dress and behave. And according to our psalm here, the labor and the home life of the ordinary believer is simply not all that radical. And while the blessings of God's promises are extraordinary in the joy and the pleasure it brings to be faithful to God, God's most sublime blessings are anything but radical. The fact is, some of the best, most faithful, God-blessed Christians are simply lay people who live quiet lives and glorify God in the home and in the workplace and consistently keep the faith over a whole lifetime of unpretentious, often unnoticed faithfulness. They do justice, and they love kindness, and they walk humbly with God, and that's what true piety ordinarily looks like. Don't let anyone disparage or depreciate that truth. That kind of simple, ordinary piety is precisely what our psalm celebrates. This is the Old Testament description of someone who loses his life in order to find it. Luther loved this psalm because it proved to Luther that fruitful marriage, not mandatory celibacy, but fruitful marriage is what Scripture points to as the epitome of divine blessing. And I love it for a similar reason. This psalm debunks that silly, quasi-monastical notion that living weird is the only way to obtain the blessing of God on your life. This has been a popular notion among college students ever since I was in college. We had lots of students in my day who talked about radical discipleship, and they wanted to be radical, and they wanted to live a radical life, and they were the ones that washed out immediately. It was the quiet, patient, godly students who cultivated holiness in their everyday lives that have gone on with the Lord even now. So here's this psalm. I'll read it. A song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, before we get into the meat of the text, I want you to notice a few facts that are on the face of this passage. The first thing that jumps out at me is a paradox. The opening note is fear, and the final note is peace. And in fact, this psalm is full of surprises and paradoxes like that. Fear is what begets true happiness. 
Specifically, fear of the Lord. Fear sounds negative, but fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the very essence of faith. And it turns out that God's blessing looks nothing at all like the world's notion of happiness and self-fulfillment. You know, to the typical worldling, happiness consists of a life full of leisure and material riches and power and honor and fame. It's a very self-centered, self-indulgent idea of happiness. But Scripture gives a completely different view of the blessed life. Life's greatest blessings are simpler and more ordinary than fame and fabulous wealth. And furthermore, real blessedness is going to focus our hearts on others, not on ourselves. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And the the kind of blessedness Scripture describes here is actually a richer, fuller, happier, and generally longer life. This psalm celebrates three specific blessings that belong to the person who fears God. One we'll call productivity. His life and his labors are fruitful. Verse 2, he eats of the labors of his hands. Verse 3, his wife is fruitful. Verse 5, speaks of prosperity. That's one of God's blessings on his life. Productivity. The second blessing is his progeny. Verse 3, his children are like olive shoots. That, That signifies that his offspring are not only numerous, but that they are also full of life and potential. Verse 6 mentions his grandchildren, the best of all blessings. And blessing number three is peace. There's a calm and a a deep tranquility that permeates every line of this psalm. Verse 2, you shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. And the psalm closes with a pronouncement of of the blessing of peace, peace be upon Israel. So you have those three distinct blessings. Keep them in mind because we're going to come back to them. Productivity, his progeny, and peace. So now consider the structure of this psalm. There are two stanzas here. And each stanza celebrates the same three blessings from a different perspective. Stanza 1 consists of verses 1 through 3, and stanza 2 comprises verses 4 through 6. And so the two stanzas stanzas are roughly equal, both in their length and their logic. They highlight the same types of blessings, and they follow a similar, similar pattern. Notice the pattern. The opening line states a truth in the third person. Stanza 1 opens with, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. The first line of stanza 2, you find in verse 4, is, Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So those are parallel statements. They are both speaking in the third person. uh, And if you've forgotten your basic grammar, first person is me, second person is you, third person is him or her. Each stanza starts with a a line that is spoken in the third person and then immediately shifts to second person. Verses 1 and 2. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his way. You shall eat the fruit of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. And then the rest of the stanza is entirely in the second person. Stanza 2, same thing, starts with verse 4, which goes back to third person. Behold, thus shall the man be who be blessed who fears the Lord, but then, shifting to second person, the Lord bless you from Zion, and the remainder of stanza two stays in the second person. Which, all of this makes this psalm intensely personal. It states the truism 
in the third person, emphasizing the widespread application of the principle he's giving us. And then he shifts to second person so that you, can hear, you cannot hear this song without examining yourself. And you can't sing it without pronouncing a blessing on your immediate neighbor. Now notice, I called the principles of this psalm truisms. These aren't promises, right? It's obvious, isn't it, that the blessings described in this psalm are not universal absolutes. There are God-blessed people who never marry and have children. The Apostle Paul is an example of one such saint. If he ever had been married, he, and he may have been, but if, if so, he was a widower by the time we meet him in Scripture, and the only children he ever had were his true sons and daughters in the faith, like Timothy and Titus and, and the believers in Thessalonica and Philippi and other churches to whom he was their spiritual father. But he wasn't literally the father of children, apparently, or if, if so, Scripture doesn't even record it. It's also not universally true that godly living always results in a long life and material prosperity. Hebrews 11 celebrates the faith and the blessedness of countless saints who are both known and unknown to us from the Old Testament times who suffered Scripture says mocking and flogging and, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. The writer of Hebrews says they went around in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And God could call any one of us to that kind of martyrdom, and we need to be prepared to give our lives for Christ if we're called upon to do that, we're supposed to rejoice when we suffer for Christ's sake. And in fact, one important corollary of this is you can't judge a person's character by his circumstances. Don't mistake the, the appearance of worldly health or material prosperity as signs of God's blessing. And conversely, don't ever imagine that infirmity or adversity or, or material disadvantage signifies the displeasure of God. That was, you know, the mistake of Job's counselors, right? They thought his sufferings were proof that God was displeased with him, even though the truth was the exact opposite. But nevertheless, it is a truism. It's generally true. It's true in ordinary circumstances that those who fear the Lord are blessed with productivity and progeny and peace. Now, that's enough introduction. Let's look at these two stanzas in this psalm. We'll do it one at a time. Number one, stanza one gives us the perspective from close up. Remember the three kinds of blessings this psalm celebrates. The godly person's productivity, his progeny, and the peace that envelops and shelters him. And the focus here is on one very specific scene in the domestic environment. We're given the picture from the present, centered on the family table, the food on the table, verse 2, is the fruit of this man's labors. The people around the table are his own wife and children. And the atmosphere is one of peace, verse 2. It's well with this family. Why is this home blessed? Verse 1, this is a man who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. He has a healthy reverence for God. He has a holy fear of God's displeasure. And that fear is reflected in his daily walk. This tells us he has tapped into biblical wisdom because as Psalm 111 verse 10 and, and Proverbs 9 verse 10 both say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. And in the words of Job 28.28, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. We don't hear enough about holy fear these days. Modern preachers like to encourage familiarity with God rather than fear of Him. And that's why so much of today's worship is casual and flippant and man-centered. But Scripture is full of admonitions for us to fear the Lord. And for many today, that's an unfamiliar concept. I get that. I spent the larger portion of my childhood in Sunday school classes where we were actually encouraged to think of God as a benign buddy who winks at sin rather than demanding righteous retribution. And, and I remember as a child being shocked the first time I ever heard someone described as a God-fearing person. As I recall, here's another secret to my background. The first time I ever heard that phrase was in an issue of Mad Magazine when I was about 11 years old. Somebody described as a God-fearing person. And, and I thought that had a really bad sound to it. I remember thinking, God is not to be feared. That's, that's what I'd always learned in Sunday school. And, of course, that contradicts what the Bible actually says. Hebrews 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And, thankfully, when I was 17, while I was reading Scripture for myself one night, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my own guilt and awakened that fear of God in my soul. And I suddenly understood that was the beginning of wisdom for me. And the Psalms are full of verses like this that speak of the necessary link between blessedness and the fear of God. Psalm 112 starts off with this, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 115, verse 13, The Lord will bless those who fear him, both the small and the great. Psalm 147, verse 11, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. This man's fear of God sets the example for the whole family. He has his household in order. And from the description of his home life, it's, it's clear, I think, that his wife likewise honors the Lord in her life. And because their children are such a blessing, it's clear that the, those kids are being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as well. This describes a lifestyle that actually is quite countercultural in our generation. And sadly, families like this were probably pretty rare in the Old Testament era as well. But again, this is not describing a radical lifestyle in the sense of being a life that's marked with the emblems of rebellion. This is what God's ordinary blessings look like. Some of the most basic and yet the finest of all earthly blessings are the fruits of our own labor. Verse 2, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. Notice, that presupposes labor on the part of the one who's receiving God's blessing. If you're, if you're able but not working, you don't really fear the Lord and you can't expect God's blessing on your life. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Proverbs 23 verse 24 says, if you're a sluggard, poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Productivity is a blessing of God that is reserved for everyone who fears the Lord and walks in His ways, and that means work rather than idleness. And this man's wife is likewise fruitful, and that's, this is not primarily a reference to childbearing, though you can't exclude that. 
But the psalm likens her to a vine, which is an image that evokes beauty and shelter as well as abundant fruit. And her fruitfulness is reflected not only and and maybe not even primarily in childbearing, but in everything she does. This is a Proverbs 31 woman. She's a worker at home, verse 3. She's like a fruitful vine within your house, within your house. Vines don't move about and meander from place to place. They are permanently rooted. And the place where this woman sets down her roots is in her own home. She's not a gadabout. And and like a well-cultivated grapevine, she makes her home a place of beauty and shelter. And the blessings of a life like that are only multiplied with children. The psalm just before this one, Psalm 127, says that children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. And our psalm simply expands on that thought and, uh, and broadens it out a bit. Children are not an earned reward given in return for some meritorious works that we do. They are a divinely bestowed, gracious blessing above and beyond what we really deserve. Children are never portrayed in Scripture as a unwanted inconvenience or an interruption that, you know, disrupts our personal plans and our professional careers the way selfish people today often think children are tokens of God's blessing. There's something of great value and a source of immense joy. And if you think of children in any other light, you're probably going to be a bad parent. Verse 3, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. So, Just like the grapevine is an analogy for the wife, olive shoots are the illustration of his children. They're young. They're full of life and potential. They need only the right care and cultivation in order to become fruitful. You know, an olive tree is a valuable commodity in in the Old Testament culture. The oil of the olive tree was one of the staples of life in all the biblical cultures. We used to have an olive tree in our backyard. I love olives, and, and that tree had a spectacular trunk. Olive tree trunks are really amazing. But I'm terribly allergic to olive blossoms, and so I would always prune this olive tree severely just about the time it began to bud. And uh, olive trees are amazingly hardy as well. And when you prune the top branches, dozens of these little shoots would come up from the base around the trunk. These were fast-growing. They were almost instantly leafy and green, and, and they were tied into the same root system as that main trunk. That is how olive trees refresh and perpetuate their own vitality, because that's how they grow. And, they, and because of that, they live for ages. You could visit Gethsemane today, and there is an olive grove there that dates back to the time of Christ. And there are great ancient tree trunks there, some of which were just shoots probably when Jesus was praying in that garden. And the underlying root system is even older than that. And that's the idea of the text here. This man's progeny signify that his name and his influence are going to endure long after his earthly life has ended. They're full of promise and potential. These are living reasons to bless God and to thank Him for His abundant blessings. The picture of this man's blessedness, think about it, it's not radical in the sense of that word today, the way it's used today, but it's singular, and it's all too unusual, 
and it's profoundly exalted in the sight of God, endowed with the, the kind of rich good fortune that this world values far too little. This kind of domestic happiness is the very focal point of this psalm, and, and because it's a picture of peace, verse 2, you shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. So there, that stanza one. You have the short-range, close-up, present-tense perspective of a God-blessed life. This man's productivity, his progeny, and his peace are all blessings that money cannot buy. They're unique blessings that come from the hand of God, singularly reserved for those who fear the Lord and walk in His ways. Now, someone might ask, well, but don't unbelievers also share in blessings like those? I mean, couldn't this same description apply to a Mormon family or, or even some Hindu households? And the answer is, in a superficial way, yes, perhaps. Tables filled with food, surrounded by children, graced with domestic happiness, these are true gifts from God, and in fact, they are often common grace gifts in the sense that they are sometimes enjoyed even by the wicked. But here's the difference. Unredeemed people typically see gifts like this as symbols of their own noble majesty. The blessings become a temptation to pride, but to the righteous person, the truly wise person, blessings such as these represent tokens of God's eternal grace. They're not rewards that we've earned. They're superabundant blessings that remind us that God's favor is totally undeserved by us, but He gives His favor freely to repentant sinners. In Genesis 33, verse 5, when Esau encountered Jacob after years of living in exile, Esau asked him, who are these with you? He's there with a whole army of people. Who are these people with you, Esau says. And Jacob answers, they are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Gracious gifts, tokens of grace, not emblems of my own goodness and greatness, but visible proof of God's glorious grace. Now look at the second stanza. Remember, stanza one gave us a perspective from close up. Stanza two gives us a wide-angle, long-range perspective. And the second stanza starts with verse 4. It goes right back to the thought of verse 1. It's a pronouncement of blessing on the God-fearing man, again, in the third person. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And then it shifts into second person. The Lord bless you from Zion. Zion was the destination of the pilgrims who sang this chorus. And they aren't there yet, but while they're singing... This stanza invokes future blessings. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Again, this is the blessing of productivity. But this time, what the psalmist has in view is not the productivity of a single family, but the prosperity of an entire nation. The word prosperity here in our text speaks of the biblical concept of divine blessing. Spiritual affluence. This is not about material sufficiency only, it includes that. But this kind of prosperity has nothing whatsoever to do with the worldly idea of mammon. The world's idea, you know, of prosperity is overabundance, opulence, luxury, self-indulgence, all dependent on material wealth. The Lord's definition of prosperity, by contrast, is full forgiveness, 
the imputation of perfect righteousness and grace to help in time of need. These are all blessings of eternal value. And sometimes the Lord's supply may seem meager, but it's always sufficient. He measures his blessings carefully so that a glut of earthly prosperity doesn't extinguish our hope of heaven. And even that's a great blessing. Don't be envious of the wealthy wicked. Earthly wealth is the only kind of prosperity they're ever going to know, and that's an eternal tragedy. But what's expressed in that final phrase of verse 5 is a wish to see the Lord's goodness as a covering over all Jerusalem. And what would that chiefly look like? Well, it's the same blessings we were singing about in verses 1 through 3. Domestic happiness and the prospect of a bright future embodied in our children and, and sufficient food and shelter for each day. Again, none of that is anything that we think of as radical. And still taking the long look, verse 6, may you see your children's children. As great a blessing as children are, grandchildren are even better. I can testify to that. These are the third generation of a person's progeny, and, and the fact uh, that, that he is able to see them signifies the blessing of a long life. To live long enough to see your grandchildren is the very pinnacle of earthly blessing. And I love that because it perfectly describes my own experience. Nothing in all my life brings me more joy and pure delight than my grandchildren. I get to enjoy them. I get to be entertained by them. I get to delight in them with grandfatherly love. And I can say yes to them all the time. And if they need to be told no or disciplined for their misbehavior, I just hand them back to their parents. Again, grandchildren are the very best of earthly blessings. Proverbs 17, 6 says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged. Someday you'll have them. Savor them. So again, the psalmist celebrates the productivity of the righteous and their progeny, and then he closes with a pronouncement of peace upon them. Peace be upon Israel. That was also the closing line of Psalm 125. It's the perfect final note for these pilgrim songs. Let me close with two practical observations that come straight from the theme of this psalm. Notice, first of all, that the biblical description of divine blessing and true prosperity focuses on people, not property. This man's best riches are his wife and his children and his children's children. They are worth more to him than all the material wealth in the world, and he enjoys them in that light. That's an important perspective, especially if you're feeling the pinch of scarce financial resources. Second, don't miss the big picture lesson of this psalm. If you want to have a God-blessed life, fear Him. Repent of your sin and trust in His grace. That and that alone will ensure God's blessing on your life. One of Satan's favorite lies is the falsehood that sin will somehow make our lives easier. You know, stealing is a shortcut to prosperity. Lasciviousness is more pleasing than marital fidelity. The way of righteousness is arduous and severe, but the path of sin is relaxed and easy. Obedience is demanding and burdensome. But sin offers a shortcut to the easy life. Forbidden fruit is an unfair and, and unloving restriction, and it, it will keep you in a cloud of ignorance. That's what Satan told Eve. 
Eat the forbidden fruit and your eyes will be truly open. Those are all lies. Sin is what makes life hard, not faithfulness. Evil is always full of cruelty. Sin enslaves the sinner and it exacts a price no one could ever pay in full. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. There is no more difficult way to live than constantly going against the grain of divine righteousness. But God is gracious, and He Himself paid the price of sin in the person of Jesus Christ. He will forgive the sins of those who turn to Him in repentant faith. He'll raise them up. He'll set their feet on a rock. He'll cover their guilt with the perfect righteousness of Christ. He'll grant them eternal life freely, and from the very moment they believe, He will bless their lives with these gracious gifts that surpass Really, they do surpass all of the material riches of the universe. And that's what this psalm celebrates. It's the birthright and the everlasting privilege of everyone who ever trusts in Christ. In the words of Jesus himself, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, I've come to the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness, and whoever comes to me I will not cast out. Let's pray. Father, so many of your best blessings are unappreciated by us. Help us to see our lives and your grace in a more biblical light. Satisfy us with your goodness in whatever form the blessings come. Keep us longing for the perfect bliss of heaven, we pray in Jesus' name.